Good morning. We find joy in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We don't find a lot of joy. We find some evidence of tension and lack of joy between the sentences that are written in the church of Philippi. We find some tension there. Those Paul left in charge are becoming anxious and afraid, becoming discouraged and disappointed. So we might ask the question, uh, relevant question, why has this church lost its joy? Where is joy found? And where does it tend to disappear? Paul clears away the confusion and he ends up isolating the influence that is ripping this church apart and that is stealing its joy. Look what it says in Philippians 3, 1 through 7. I'll read it. Follow along. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, finds the need to tell this group of believers to Watch out. They had lost sight of what is dangerous. They let their guard down. And as a result of not knowing what to look out for, not knowing what to watch out for, their spiritual lives are ebbing as a result, and they really don't know why. Tells them, look out. What are they to look out for? It says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The dogs is a word that the people in the church at Philippi probably heard, and they heard it being aimed at them in the Jewish culture. And 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. An unconverted Gentile who existed outside of covenant involvement who was seen as an outie. So if you were a Jew, you considered Jews and converts to Judaism as innies. Everybody else was an outie. And another way to refer to these outies was to call them dogs. Um, it was a term, not, of, not a really nice term but a term that they felt describes those who live outside of covenant relationship with God. 
talking about evildoers. And when Paul says, I'll look out for evildoers, he's not talking about secular evil. He's not saying look out for people who rob stores, look out for people who steal, look out for people who beat people up. He's not talking about secular evil. He's talking about sacred. They will need to watch out when they enter churches and sacred assemblies. The things to watch out for are not going to hit them when they're walking in downtown Philippi unless they walk by a religious establishment. That's what they've got to watch out for. These evildoers will be active in church. That's why he writes this in the context of a letter to be written in a church. So look out for dogs, look out for evildoers. He says those mutilators of the flesh. Uh, Different barbarian pagans had different mutilation rites that they did to identify innies and outies, and some of them were very gross, involved mutilation of different parts of the body. Jews had circumcision, and the way Paul describes circumcision here, he describes it as mutilating the flesh. This is extremely harsh language, in light of the fact that Paul would have prescribed circumcision as being something necessary for an any. Again, when the Bible talks about circumcision, it's not speaking of a, a procedure that could bring cleanliness. You know, sometimes that's what circumcision means in our day. In that day, circumcision was something that you did to define yourself as an any. God said, this is what you need to do in order to cross over from being a dog to being part of the family, from being an Audi to being an any, you needed, guys, to be circumcised. And when you were, that brought you within covenant community, as long as you were willing to do the rest of the things to go with it. Um, to describe this as mutilation, Paul is being very harsh. And who is he targeting then? Who is he telling them? Look out for. Um, It seems those who would instruct Gentile converts to submit to circumcision. You know what he's telling them to watch out for? Watch out for those who tell you to this group of Philippians that you need to become Jews in order to become Christians. That's what he's telling them to watch out for. Those who say, you need to do the holy days, you need to do the circumcision, you need to avoid the food, you need to do the things Jews do in order to be Christians. If you're not willing to submit to these rules, then you are out. And Paul says, watch out for people who would communicate that to you. I think he's targeting not unconverted Jews, but false teachers. He's not aiming the gun at Jews in general. He's aiming the gun at Jewish Christians who come into the church, Jewish Christians, and who convince Christian people that, again, they need to become Jews in order to become any. Paul says, that is the influence that will kill you. Watch out for that. Uh, Paul writes, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. What defines an innie or an outie according to Paul? Well, you worship by the Spirit of God. You put your confidence in Christ Jesus. Not in what you do for him, but what he did for you. 
those who are in his believe that God has taken the step. The weight is on the shoulders of God and his son, not on the shoulders of individuals who have to do this and that. Um, He said, put no confidence in the flesh. What does it mean to put no confidence in the flesh? What he says in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the exact day you needed to be circumcised. Um, of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a senator in those days. It was somebody who studied the law. They were the lawyers in that sense because Israel at the time was a theocracy. And the law of the land was the law of God. And in our place, lawyers are those who understand the law. They understand the Constitution. In that day, the law of God was the law of the land. There was no separation between church and state. And so the police worked for the clergy. And so if you didn't tithe, if you didn't do this, that, and the other, it wasn't just shame, shame on you in a service. You might have somebody with some weight, the weight of the government behind them, forcing you to comply. That's what it was. That's what it was like living in a theocracy. It was, it's more like living in a Muslim state. The more that, you know, it's in terms of comparing apples with apples, that's kind of what it would feel like. It talks about as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, uh, Paul was not in it for the power. Again, a lot of Pharisees who were Pharisees, that was their way to have access to power, but Paul was a Roman citizen. That was a privilege that you paid a lot of money or you had to do something in order for your family to receive that benefit. What we think happened is one of Paul's grandfathers, great-grandfathers, must have done something for one of the emperors. And the emperor conferred upon Paul and his family the status of citizenship. citizenship, And that was a really big thing. So Paul was a Roman citizen. He didn't need to become a leader in order to get out from under some type of inferiority thing. No. So when he became a Pharisee, he did so because he believed in it. And he was willing to, to do whatever. That's why when others were a little bit hesitant to persecute the church, Paul said, I'll go. It's wrong. And he was going to, he was willing to do what he needed to do. Um, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Um, to put confidence in the flesh then, in the context, it's not about, okay, I'm big, therefore God wants, will accept me. Confidence in the flesh is to do the right religious things, Jewish things. You need to be circumcised on the right day. You need to be one of the tribes of Israel. You need to have done the things that would lead you to become Jews in order to be accepted by God. So here would be the question put to an individual. If God were to stand by the gates of heaven, eternal existence, and ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Confidence in the flesh, as Paul defines it, would be, well, I was circumcised on the right day belong to the right tribe, um, we wouldn't necessarily say that. What does it mean for us to put confidence in the flesh? Um, There are other commandments, and it seems that to put confidence in the flesh would be to regard ourselves when we 
keep the commandments to the degree we think necessary that God would accept us. So why should I let you in? Well, because I keep holy the Lord's Day. That's why you should let me in, because I honor Sundays. Because I try not to steal. I try not to deal falsely. I don't commit adultery. I try not to covet. And do you notice the pronoun? Do you notice the pronoun I'm using? I, 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 I. Who am I trusting in when I use I as a pronoun? Eternal existence is given to those who transfer their trust from what they do for God to what God does for them. It's not behaving. It's about believing. That's what Paul is teaching them. Um, and he had to write this over and over. We have a nasty tendency to crawl out from under it's all you to, well, maybe it's partly me too. We have a hard time with pronouns when we're told to believe in what he does. We start there, but then we drift from he to me, from he to me. Okay, yeah, I know what God did, but in order to really be loved, I need to read the Bible more. Nothing wrong with reading the Bible. Would it cause you to be more loved? I need to overcome this particular sin. Again, yeah, overcoming sin is important, but will it cause you to be more loved? Tricky, though, isn't it? Tricky, isn't it? We have a tendency to drift from he to me. That's why Paul says, finally, my brothers, in, in the first verse, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, is safe for you. Paul wrote this a lot. Remember who you put your confidence in. Not what you do for him, what he does for you. You say, well, what's the big deal? This misunderstanding is what was killing the church in Philippi and what was stealing their joy. Here's the deal. When you put the weight of your eternal destiny on your shoulders, I'll tell you one thing that's going to disappear faster than you go like this, and that is joy. That's joy. When you have to in order to be accepted, you might get determination you might get discipline. I'll tell you what you won't have, joy. Joy disappears. Joy is found on the far side of love, and love is found on the far side of freedom. I'll say that a couple of times. Anyways, Paul would put the crosshairs on sacred evil. Watch out for people in sacred assemblies who would lead you to believe that God loves you and will love you even more. And God, Paul would put the crosshairs on that, but then it would start to stray. And then it would go to different secular forms of evil. Again, secular evil is something to watch out for. But it doesn't get in the way of our connection with God. It makes life uncomfortable. We tend to think that we need to watch out for immorality. Okay, yeah, that's something to watch out for. Sacred evil is more dangerous. It sucks life away and you're not even aware that it's doing so. That's why, and it, and it steals joy. That's what happened in Galatia. Uh, Paul led them to believe that because of the cross, they were beloved children of God. And what ended up happening, because they believed this, they really believed it. 
They believe, you mean to tell me because of what Jesus did, we're innies, and all we have to do is believe it? Paul said, that's exactly what I'm... Hey, wait, 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 wait. We don't have to eat this or that or go to this or that. That's what, exactly what I'm saying because of what he did. That's it. And you know what we tend to be afraid of? That if we believe something like that, then they say, hey, whoa, great, I can do anything. That's not what happened. You know what ended up happening to them? Get this. They found it easy to love one another. The weight was off. And you know what that brought on the far side of the ability to love one another? What do you find on the far side of love? Joy. That's what you find on the far side of love, either being in that community, being part of the community. When people are, the burden is off, they are loving one another. That's a place where joy lives. It might not be a lot of money. People aren't perfect. But there's love there. There's joy. That's where joy is found. Joy is found on the far side of love. You want to get to joy? You get there via love. False teachers had come in to the church at Galatia, and here's what they did. They came up when Paul left. Okay, how many believe, so they might do something like this. We don't, how many believe that God loves you because of Jesus? Come on, put your hands up. And these were the teachers in Galatia would have said, okay, I'm going to add something. Paul might not have said this. God loves you. Amen? Amen? Amen. And he'll love you even more if you honor the Lord of the holy days. And he'll love you even more if you avoid food sacrifice to idols. And he'll love you even more if you get served. What do you think? And they ended up saying, Amen. You know what they did? They believed it. What do you imagine happened? Tell you what happened with joy. That's what happens when the burden comes off of Jesus and goes onto our shoulders. They were disciplined and they did the things. You know what they ended up starting to do? It said they they started to bite and devour one another. Bite and devour one another. You know what you do? Because we're supposed to be filled with the sense of God's love and when God's love is kind of mixed with, he kind of loves you and kind of doesn't, that it leads to an emptiness. And when we become empty, you know what we end up doing? We end up taking bites out of ourselves. The word remorse, the word remorse comes from a Latin word, more dear, which means to take a bite. You know, how could God love somebody like me? Look at the things I deal with. Crunch. And that's what ends up happening when we lose sight of the good news. We start to take bites out of ourselves and bites out of one another. Well, I tell you, I might not be something, but... Have you seen Travis, some of the stuff he deals with? <laughs> I tell you what, I might not be much, but I'll t- mm-hmm. And what you end up doing, comparing yourselves with others. Of course, we don't do anything like that. But that's what happens. And when you live in that sense of comparison, biting and devouring one another, joy doesn't stick around. Um, false teachers came, and this is why, this is what Paul is targeting in Galatia, false teachers who came in. Uh, Jewish Christian missionaries who wittingly or unwittingly mixed Christianity and Judaism that tried to put new wine into old skins. They reasoned with the people that God loves you and will love you even more if you, and this is what the letter to the Galatians dealt with. There's two things that Paul tells them 
and tells us in terms of dealing with influences like this, there's two things you need. You need a good yes and a good no. A good yes and a good no, and then serve one another in love. Say yes to the good news. Look what it says it's in your worship folder. Paul writes to this church that is consuming one another, and his first command doesn't come until the third chapter. And this is it. This is the first thing he tells them to do. This church is coming apart, just like the church in Philippi. The church in Galatia is even worse off. They're biting and devouring one another, envy, fights, and he doesn't tell them to get with it. His first command, this is it. Look at his first command. Know then that it is those who are, are those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You know, he says, righteousness is a matter of believing. You are in any based on, I want you to listen to me. You're in any based on what you believe not how you behave. Believe the right things and focus on that, and it will impact behavior. But belief eclipses behavior. It has to be the focus. And what does a Christian believe? Well, let's see. In Romans 4, 4 through 8, it says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. But so would you agree with me? Righteousness means to be accepted. What did Abraham do that led him to become an innie? What did he do? He believed God. God said something, he believed it, and that settled it. That's the way it works. It's the way it works. Righteousness is given to those who believe. Okay. What are we supposed to believe? It goes on. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now it says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Salvation is a gift, not a reward. You agree? If, if I submit a time card to God, you'll notice how often I went to church. And if you notice down on verse 5, if I could point out, God, uh, you'll notice the amount that was given, the percentage, and you'll notice the amount of Travis's gifts. Um, and so I just, here it is, I'll kind of tender this, and you can look at it at your leisure. <laughs> and what I get back, then, if I get, oh, wonderful, if I get that back and it's signed, is that a gift or is that a paycheck. It's a paycheck. Salvation is not a paycheck. It's a gift. Therefore, don't think that in tendering the things that you do for him, that God's going to look at that and say, wonderful, because salvation is not a matter of behaving. It's a matter of believing. What is it we're supposed to believe? We are to believe in him who justifies the ungodly. That's exact. And in the Greek, the word ungodly literally means 
ungodly. <laughs> what does a Christian believe? He believes in a God who justifies the ungodly. I want you to think about that. It doesn't say that God accepts every ungodly person. That's not what it says. It does say what a person who is an any believes. We are to believe of God that he rewards the godly. Right? God rewards the godly. Give me the sign. God doesn't reward the godly. To be justified means declared righteous. He justifies the ungodly. That's what your God is like. And when we believe this, look what it says. His faith is counted as righteousness, Romans 5, 6, 4, 6, 4, 5, excuse me. And just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. Simple enough, don't you think? Simple enough. God, we're supposed to believe that God justifies the ungodly. Um, and someone came and said that God loved them and loved them even more, and they said, yes. Salvation's a free gift. Salvation's a free gift. And salvation is a wage for services rendered. You know what they said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a free gift. Uh-huh. It's a paycheck. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, sure, whatever you say. Um, uh, we're saved by works. We're saved by works. But God loves us more when we read the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And so you understand. That's what they had a hard time with. Um, I have a question. Okay, Mike, this is nice. This all is pleasant. What about when we sin? That certainly would impact something, wouldn't it? You're not going to say that God still loves me the same when I sin. You're not going to say that. What do you think? Would you believe it's tricky? How many think that's kind of tricky? Tricky? What it says. Look at what it says in verse 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Somebody who believes God justifies the ungodly is accepted, and it talks about the way God relates to that individual. How many of you believe that God credits people as righteous because of what they believe, because of what you believe? Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus died so that you could be righteous, that righteousness is a gift? Do you believe that? I'm going to ask you again. Do you believe that? Then what's true about you? Does God love you more when you sin and less when you don't? But it's a good question, though, isn't it? What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be righteous? Look what it says. Again, this, this describes you. If you believe that God credits righteousness apart from works, what it's going to say describes you. What it says. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is God counting your sin? How do you know? That's what it says. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. What if I believe that? If you believe that, you would be a Christian. Because that's what a Christian believes. But mm, why don't we believe that? You know what I want to suggest? We have a good yes, but a weak no. And when we hear stuff that is not true, we go, oh, okay, uh-huh, sure. He carries the Bible and he's saying biblical things. And so, yeah, whatever you say. We have a good yes, but a, but a weak no. And I'll tell you what, if you're going to stay believing, you're going to need a good no. That's what the Galatians didn't have. We have to say no to the not-so-good news. Look what it says in Galatians 5.1. You have to say yes to the good news and no to the not-so-good news. For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. Um, They submitted. Somebody came and said, God loves you and will love you even more. You know what they should have said? What should have they said? No! Because God loves me because of what Jesus did, not because of what I do. No, he won't love me more. They kind of said, (laughs) No, they they just were scuttled. They didn't know what to say. They didn't have a good no. Do you have a good no? You're going to need it. Because you won't have to look for trouble. Trouble will look for you. The Galatians didn't go looking for trouble. Trouble came to them, people on Paul's heels who tried to convince them of something. And rather than say no, they well, they just had a weak no. Um, they didn't know enough to watch out. Well, this person carries a big Bible. And it's God well marked. That person's not a threat, right? Right? That's it. Yeah, I'm not saying watch out for every person who has a Bible, but the people to watch out for will carry Bibles. And they'll know them. They just won't know the message. They'll think that salvation is about what they do rather than what they believe. And they will convince you that you will be loved more when you, and you're going to have to learn. Again, you're not, you're not, you don't have to get in their face. Inside though, you're going to have to say, nope, no. And sometimes, again, there's all kinds of stuff on, and not everything is bad, but there are some things that go along Christian radio. You're going to have to say, mm, no. You're going to have to say that. When you read Christian books, you're going to, again, am I saying, no, read them. But just be aware, have a good no and a good yes on hand. Okay? Have both of them. Because you're going to need both of them. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. You're going to need both. And if there's no no's, you have to develop one. Um, we tend to think as long as we're not doing Jewish stuff, we're okay. You know, just as long, you know, let's, let's be clear. So as long as you're not slitting the throat of a goat, you know what I mean, you're good. <laughs> you know, if you start to slit the throats of goats, then you might watch out. But if you're not slitting the throats of goats or, you know, anything like that, then you're good. But is that 
That's what we tend to think when we look at things like this. We're in no jeopardy. Not a threat to us, is it? Yeah. Look what Paul says in Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The old covenant is the record, and I'll read the rest in just a sec. The old covenant is the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God will bless you if you and will curse you if you don't. That is the certificate of debt. That's what hands stains over our head. What it says, this is what God set aside nailing it to the cross. What did God set aside nailing it to the cross? The old covenant. We're going to celebrate communion. And what communion tells us is the covenants changed. It went from old covenant, commandment-based, you're blessed if you obey and cursed if you disobey. That was the old agreement. At the cross, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. When we celebrate communion, we're celebrating that God went from old covenant to new covenant. It's a different covenant. It's not a hybrid, old and new. It's... The old is the old, and the new is the new. And um, God set aside the old one by nailing it to the cross. This is how he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Again, when we are under the weight of God blesses you if you obey and curses when you disobey, you know what that leads to? Insecurity and fear. Fear of judgment. I'll tell you what. Fear of judgment can lead to a lot of things. You know what it can't lead to? Love. And it can't lead to joy. Not possible. It is not possible for you to be frightened into love and into joy. Just isn't, just doesn't work. Different operating systems. That's why God convinces us of the fact that we are not judged. You know why? Because as the fear of judgment goes down, what goes up? And when love goes up, what goes up? Joy. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Joy is found on the far side of love, and love is found on the far side of freedom from law, from the old covenant. That's what Jesus pinned to the cross. When we understand that's what the cross means, um, I've done this illustration before. Let's say ISIS captured somebody from Sioux Falls. ISIS captured somebody from Sioux Falls. Somebody was traveling and they took them in custody and they found them guilty of violating Islamic law. Um, We determined that we, as this church, are going to rescue this person. And there's two ways to do so. We could operate within the law. And what we could do, we could send a substitute. Anybody willing to go and to hand themselves over to the powers that be in this part of the Middle East. And what's going to happen, we're going to do an exchange. You will take this person's place, and they will be free. We might find somebody to do something like that. But that's operating within their law. That's one way to set them free, right? There's an exchange, and this person 
will take their punishment and, okay, there's another way to do so, and that would be to go get a lot of guns and overthrow the government and take, and again, I'm just talking about this specific instance, and to take their law and nail it to a wall and put a cross through it, eradicate it. The government is overthrown, and the law is no longer in control. Will the person go free? Did we have to exchange anyone? Which one of these resembles what happened at the cross? The latter. He nailed the law to the cross. God does no longer bless who keeps the commandment and curses those who don't. How do you know? That's what got nailed to the cross. It's a different government. It's a different covenant. What's the deal now, Mark? God will not count the sins against those who believe that he justifies the ungodly. That's the new covenant. Jeez, holy smokes. So what? What are you supposed to do? What he says, therefore, 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He talks about the Lord's Day. What are you supposed to do? When somebody says, you know what? <laughs> I saw you, Chuck. <laughs> I don't want to say anything. He was mowing his lawn on the Lord's Day. Huh? And using a riding mower. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? You know what you're supposed to do? That does, that's not terrible. Okay, now relax on the Lord's Day, relax on the Sabbath, but don't think God loves you anymore because that's where you're not supposed to let anyone judge you on. It doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Because it doesn't matter what I do for him. It's about what he did for me, and it's not about behaving. It's believing. So I'm going to do. I'm going to honor God on Sunday, not because I have to, but because I want to. And that's different. I don't have to to be in the family. My status in the family is not dependent on what I do and don't do on Sunday. I'm in because of what he did. And when I believe it, you know what it seems to be? It's not we worship God, then he loves us. We worship God when he loves us. God's love for you is what will stimulate your worship for him. Hmm. Hmm. Um. What's so bad about pressuring people to obey the commandments? Look at verse 23. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know what it basically says? You can put obligations on people, but it won't help them be righteous. It won't lead them to love. It won't lead them to joy. It just it can't work. It just doesn't work. They're of no use. No use. 
in restraining the things you want to restrain. You say, Mike, I want to do more do's and do less don'ts. But I'm going to tell you, do not go under law. Do not believe that by doing this, you make God love you. And by, again, you say, Mike, we've already know this. Paul wrote this all the time. Because you know what you have to do? You have to look out. Because people will carry Bibles and they'll sound convincing and you'll stray. You'll think, well, this isn't bad. Yes, it is. Watch out. You say, I don't need to take you. I'm deadly serious. Develop a good yes, develop a good no, and use it. Why? Because love and joy depend on it. It's tricky. Last point. Say yes to the good news. Say no to the not so good news. And then serve one another in love. Serve one Look what it says. The final command. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather serve one another in love. Paul didn't immediately address their lack of love. He gives them three commands, but he doesn't give them this command about, come on, love one another until chapter 5. If God were to write three commands to you, seeing what kind of life you have, knowing what kind of issues you deal with in terms of sin, what would he write to you? You know what he would say? I think he would say, know then that those who believe are children of Abraham. You, you become a child of God by believing. Stand firm. Don't let yourselves be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't do it. And then serve one another in love. Do you know what the thing is? So we talk about joy is found on the far side of love, right? Love is found on the far side of freedom. It's liberty, then love, then joy. What is it? Liberty, then, then. In order to get joy, you need, in order to get love, you need freedom. Freedom. Liberty, then love. Liberty. And that's why Paul had to keep on writing it. And this is the nature of joy. Love can't be legislated. Um, the early church was great at it. They're not great at it, but they were good at it. There was a lot of persecution, but they really were pretty good at loving. Um, and then things changed overnight. Again, there was some, some plagues in the third century. And um, the Christians would roll up their sleeves and go tend to the sick because they believed that those people mattered to God. And so they rolled up their sleeve, they rolled the dice, and they loved them. Some of them died, some of them didn't, but they felt like this is somebody Jesus would love, and we're going to love them. And you know what the government tried to do? Because it was so effective, they tried to make the same thing happen, and they tried to legislate, we want you to go and take care of the sick and the bereaved and the oppressed. Emperor Julian did that. And how well did that work? You can't legislate love. It, it didn't work because the people were sitting there and they would look at the church. They'd say, look how they love one another. But the government couldn't make that happen. You know what ended up happening? Things happened. Things changed overnight. There was some persecutions. And then in the um, 
early part of the fourth century, Constantine had a sign and a cross, and he used that to go into battle, and he was victorious. And then what he ended up doing in the decades that followed, he caused Christianity to be the kind of the favored religion of the religious empire. So they built houses for clergy, and if you wanted to get an important post, you had to be a Christian to do so. And what do you think happened? So now they're legislating, do what the Bible commands. Or the Bible wasn't in place yet, actually. Do what this Christian religion commands, and then you'll get benefited. How do you think? Do you think love went up or down? Love went up or down? Down. You can't legislate love. It's got to be free. You do it because you want to. When it's legislated, it doesn't work. That's what ended up happening, and within a generation of it becoming the official religion. You know what Christians were doing? Killing one another for heresy. It happened that fast. Within a generation, it went from sacrificing for the poor to infighting with one another. What caused that, Mike? Do you know what caused that? They didn't know to watch out. They might have had a good yes, but they didn't have a good no. And because they didn't have a good no, they couldn't serve one another in love, and love spiraled, and there was no joy. Okay, how do we wrap this up? There's joy is on the far side of, and love is on the far side of freedom. Freedom is about... um, uh, verse, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been made perfect in love. We're going to celebrate communion. And what this is about, it's about the new covenant. You do not need to be afraid of God. The more you learn about him, the less you will fear his judgment. I want you to listen to me. God is not counting your sin. He is not. And when you believe that, you stop fearing his judgment. And when you stop fearing his judgment, it will lead to love. And as love becomes practiced, it will lead to joy. Um, We're going to go to the table and, again, remember what this signifies, a change in covenants. You don't have to fear judgment anymore. Now we believe it. Not everybody believes it. If you believe it, you'll have a good yes, good no, and then you'll leverage that to serve one another in love. Um, Sometime during the course of the song, go up, get the elements. Remember what they mean? Remember what they mean? And, um, and then partake, think of Jesus dying to inaugurate a new covenant and rescind the old one. Blessed relief. Thank him for that. And then we'll have a song. Dear Father, we just want to thank you. Help us to remember to watch out. Help us to remember Paul's rules and 
Help us to remember this is free and that this is a new covenant and that you have abolished the law. We are so thankful for liberty, love, and joy. These things we are grateful for and we humbly receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.